You guys made it. The last session. Yeah, you're like, do I cheer? Do I not cheer? Don't worry, I'm not going to yell at you this time, like this morning. Or am I? Just kidding. Guys, I just want to be uh, just completely honest with you, as I've hoped to be this whole time, but I really, I really actually just want to thank you. I want to thank you. You have, um, you have been attentive. You have shown me um, great kindness and respect in even listening. And I think that those of you who have been listening have reaped the benefit of that, haven't you? Um, and I just want to thank you because you have made it a joy for me to be able to speak truth, um, which is not always the case, as we're going to even see as we look at a few different characters in Scripture tonight. Not, it, the Word of God is not always received well, but I thank you, um, and I would encourage you uh, to press on one more time. Give the Word of God your attention one more time. Of course, not for the rest of your life. Hopefully, you give the Word of God attention every moment of every day. But I mean, for this camp, don't let up. And I pray that you would see Christ as worthy. It has been my hope and prayer that you would see Him as worthy, not just of part of your life, but of all of your life this week. And some of you have even confessed to me that you have seen him as worthy for the first time. And I can truly say this. There is no greater joy for me or for any leader in this room than hearing that. And it should never cease to amaze us when God reaches his hand down from heaven to save a soul. Isn't that amazing? For one, no one deserves to be saved. Secondly, there could have been a cutoff point thousands of years ago where God said, I'm not accepting any others. And yet we've seen and have testified that this week, even some of you have been saved by God. Don't ever grow tired of that. That is only a work of God. But I hope that as we finish our sessions this evening, that maybe if you have not seen Christ as worthy, I want you to know it's not too late. It's not. Give your attention to the Word. Look to the cross and believe. I want us tonight to examine the life of three men in Scripture. We're going to take a look at their life and their death. You see, those who see Christ as worthy love Him, they live for Him, and they're willing to die for Him. Are there any things in your life that you could think that you'd be willing to die for? Well, if you see Christ as worthy, you will be willing to lay down even your life. And maybe it won't come to that. But if it does, you will gladly do it because you love God and you've seen Jesus Christ. I want us to look at the life of three men. They lived relatively short lives relatively, I guess, lives that you would say seem to be cut short before the prime of their life. I want you to see, though, how these men, having seen Jesus, having, having seen the worth of following God, though they died at young ages, they had everything. You see, the world wants to tell you you live a successful life if you achieve something. 
If you achieve a lasting legacy or wealth or power or stuff. But I want you to see from Scripture tonight that a successful life is very simple. It is knowing and living for Jesus, period. I want you to see this, that if you see Christ as worthy, you come to this conclusion that knowing and living for Jesus is all that matters. If you see him as worthy, you will come to the conclusion that knowing and living for Jesus is all that matters. These three men of the faith are all, all take place at different periods of history. We're going to look at the lives of Abel, John the Baptist, and Stephen. And though they lived at different times, they have quite a few things in common. They were men of faith. Like I said, they died relatively young, but they saw the worth of knowing God and following him. And my hope for you tonight is that you would be in awe of Jesus as you leave this place. That you would want to live for him. That you would want to trust him. And that you would gladly lay down your life should that be required. Many times when you read about these men in scripture, you read their accounts and sometimes because of their unjust deaths, as we will read, you tend to feel pity or sorry for them. And I'm going to show you, Lord willing, you have no need to feel sorry for one who knows God because they have everything. Some say that these men had so much life to live, so much potential, so much potential to be used of the kingdom. Imagine what God could have done with these men of faith. They consider their lives cut short, but these men lacked nothing because they knew Jesus. So I want us to first turn to Genesis 4. Turn with me as we read this account Genesis 4. Who said that, Carter? Genesis 4. You come to a story that you might be familiar with, but maybe you haven't studied it deeply. You know, the lives of Cain and Abel are quite symbolic of the lives of the people on this earth. They either know God or they don't. They either serve God or they don't. They either see him as worthy or they don't. Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We'll pause there. I want you to consider this. In verse 2, we find Abel and Cain had different roles. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain worked the ground. Verse 3 says, over the course of time, we're not sure how much time took place, but over the course of time, they came bringing offerings. We're not told explicitly how they were supposed to come with offerings, but we do know that God received Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's. When Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not, Cain was angry. His countenance fell. God speaks to Cain. Again, he asks him, why are you angry? Basically saying, you should have expected this. You didn't come offering my way. He came with an offering his way. Abel came with an offering God's way. God even gives a warning to Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance raise up? But if you do not, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Cain is faced with a choice. But I want you to look at verse 8. I've never seen this quite this way before until studying this. After God warns Cain... It says, Cain told Abel, his brother, a very short sentence there, Cain had some sort of conversation with Abel before killing him. I don't know what that was like. Was there a back and forth? Was Cain frustrated and Abel maybe was trying to explain to him, God did not accept your offering because you didn't do it his way. Was Abel trying to help his brother and this induced an angry response? We're not sure. Did Cain come into this conversation with Abel with intention of killing him? Or was it something that Abel said that ignited his rage? It's fascinating to wonder that moments before Cain would kill Abel, he spoke to him. But in a fit of rage, we see what happens. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Cain, after this standing over the dead body of his brother, wicked, rebellious, self-righteous Cain seemingly triumphs over Abel. Abel's body lied there, cold, lifeless, blood splattered on the ground with no witnesses. But who always sees? God always sees. We see this in verse 9 when he asks, he already knew what had happened. And he asks Cain. He gives him a chance to tell the truth, to maybe turn to him and turn from his ways. Cain lies. He says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. God says, fine. You're not going to tell me? There's a witness that tells me. It's the very blood that you shed that lays on the ground. It's crying out to me from the ground. God then curses Cain, allows him to live this long life, but sends him away. We'll come back to Cain in a moment. But think of Abel. 
Abel obeyed God. He did what was right. He saw God as worthy of obeying, worthy of submitting to, worthy of worshiping. And he lies dead on the ground. This story is tragic on the surface. He was obedient. He was young, relatively. His life was cut short. From what we know from the text, we don't, it doesn't seem like he married. It doesn't seem like he had children. He simply served God and died. Doesn't seem like Abel lived a particularly noteworthy life. He didn't live long enough to do many mighty things, but he did have one thing, and that one thing was the only thing that mattered. He saw God, and he served the living God. His faith produced obedience, like we've been talking about over these last few sessions. Faith in God always produces obedience. But before we think Abel is insignificant as just a man that lies here dead on the ground, in fact, if you've ever done like a reading through the scriptures, you come upon this passage pretty quick. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. Oftentimes, you read it, you read it quickly, and you come away with a few things. You're mad at Cain. You're maybe a little frustrated that God doesn't kill Cain. And you look in pity at Abel. But the New Testament picks up on something about Abel that we would do well to learn. Hebrews 11.4. Although this passage, by the way, does not say anything about Abel's faith, God tells us Abel has faith. You say, where? Hebrews 11.4. This is the passage of Scripture that talks about men of faith. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Through his faith, Abel's blood, his life still speaks. He was a man of faith, a man of faith in God because he saw God as worthy. Hebrews 11.6, two verses later, says this about faith. Without faith... It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That is, that God exists. You cannot come to God in faith if you don't first believe he exists. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is the message of the cross, is it not? You put your faith in Christ... He rewards you not based on your merit, not based on your work. He rewards you with eternal life through his son. You might say, wait a minute. That seems in direct contradiction to the story of Cain and Abel. He rewards those who seek him. Cain didn't seek him, and he got off scot-free. Abel sought him. He's dead on the ground. That's a contradiction. How can you say that God rewards those who seek him? I would say you are merely thinking from an earthly perspective. There are going to be plenty of things in your life that occur that seems like Hebrews 11.6 is not true. That seems like he doesn't reward those who seek him. But he does and he will. 
You say, Abel was not rewarded. I say, Abel died and went to be with Jesus. You tell me who got the reward. Abel died. He's immediately in the presence of God. And I want you to consider this. I think, I've said this before, but I think Abel is like the tour guide of heaven. He's been there the longest from the very beginning. First one in glory. He's had the most time with God. You tell me if that's a curse or not. And everybody who comes in afterwards, hey, you need to go see Abel. He knows heaven the best. <laughs> Aside from God, of course. Abel knows all the corridors, knows where your mansion is, knows where the rooms are. When you merely think of things from an earthly perspective, you may be tempted to think Abel was cursed, but he was blessed because he knew God, saw him as worthy. Cain, on the other hand, from an earthly perspective, you look at and you say, wow, he literally murdered his brother. He didn't even die right away. He didn't even pay the penalty for his sin. But I want you to look back at Genesis 4 if you're still there. If not, you can listen to this. You tell me if he was blessed. Verse 14 of Genesis 4. Behold, this is Cain speaking, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face, God, I will be hidden. There is nothing more terrifying than considering if God were to hide his face from you. Have you thought about it like that? There is nothing more terrifying than if God say it, said, I'm hiding my face from you so that you will never see me. He drove out Cain from God's face. He will be hidden. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Abel died in the, and he goes into the presence of the Lord. Cain might have lived, however long he lived, it didn't matter because he didn't know God. There is no greater curse than not knowing God. And there is no greater blessing than knowing God. You have to know that. Abel knew what mattered. He followed God. And I don't know what that conversation was like with Cain. Maybe Cain could have tried to convince Abel, hey, offer it my way so I don't get in trouble with God. I don't know. Abel did not compromise because he saw God as worthy, even if it cost him his life. His life, though short, testifies to this point. Knowing and living for Jesus is all that matters. He lacked nothing. He never missed out on a thing. Sometimes we're tempted to think that we don't really want God to return until we get to enjoy things on this earth. Maybe you're like, I, I, I know Christ is coming back, I know, but can you wait until, I have, until I'm married, until I have children? Why do you want that more than Christ? Those are good things, by the way. But you should want to see Christ first. What can be better than being with Him? Secondly, I want you to consider the life of John the Baptist. Before we go to our passage, in fact, you can um, make your way there now. Matthew 14. Go to Matthew 14. We won't read it yet. Uh, 
I want us to get a little bit of the background of John the Baptist before we read this passage. John the Baptist, of course, had an amazing birth. Elizabeth, his mother, was barren and advanced in years, the Bible says. But this is where the phrase came about, nothing will be impossible with God. God gives life to Elizabeth's womb. This is John the Baptist. He is set apart for a specific purpose. Remember, an angel tells his father and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. He was prophesied that John the Baptist would turn many sons of Israel back to God. He would go as a forerunner to pave the way before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah so as to make a way prepared for the Lord. Luke 1.80 tells us he lived in the desert until his public appearance. He lived in the desert for a while until he would appear. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Where's Grant? Grant probably would like that diet because <laughs> he likes to eat bugs. But nonetheless, his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. He wasn't a civilized or greatly educated man. The guy lived in the desert. Luke 3, 2, though, tells us, in the desert, the word of God came to John. And then Luke 3, 3 says that he would be go, go to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 3, 2 tells us that this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 3.15 says that some people wondered if John the Baptist was the Christ. And John gives a very clear response. I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist ends up baptizing Jesus himself and a voice from heaven says to Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in John, we read, John the Baptist merely calls himself a friend of Jesus the bridegroom. And as his friend, he loves to hear his voice. He says this, He must increase, I must decrease. You only say that if you see him as worthy. You too say that in your heart if you see it. He must increase, I must decrease. We read in Luke 3, that John is then unjustly thrown into prison. He's thrown into prison for calling out sin in the life of King Herod. John was also no stranger to having his message rejected. In fact, some people said John the Baptist had a demon. But John the Baptist loved Jesus. He dedicated every breath of his life to furthering his kingdom, he saw him as worthy. This is where we find ourselves in Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verse 3, let's pick up. That's the background of John the Baptist. He's in jail. Here's what happens. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Although he, King Herod, was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths 
and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took, the, took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. There are a lot of details that are not included here. But I want you to imagine the scene a bit. Use your imagination with me to wonder what this moment was like. John the Baptist loved Christ. He wanted to see Christ increase. He's probably in jail thinking to himself, I'm unjustly put here. I can't wait to get out and see what Jesus is doing. I can't wait to see who he's saving. I can't, to, can't wait to see what miracles he is doing. I can't wait to get out of here. And then, in a moment, the guards come in. Maybe Herod himself, I'm not sure. But the guards come in and they deliver the news to John the Baptist. He's probably asking them, hey, what, what's going on? Why are you here? Why are you in my cell? And they deliver the news. It's because Herod has given orders. John, you're going to need to make this easy for us. We need you to kneel down, put your head right there, your head's coming off. Out of nowhere, from just sitting in a cell to being told he's going to be killed. This is a tragic death, a terrible death, an unjust death, and we're tempted to feel sorry for John. But we must remember what John saw. We must remember who John worshipped. He saw the worth of Christ. He would gladly live for him. He would gladly die for him. You see, John in his whole life was so laser focused on the mission. He saw Christ as so much more valuable than anything else that he didn't care what he looked like, clearly. He didn't care if mankind agreed with him or not. He didn't care if he upset kings. He didn't care if he upset his brethren. He didn't care if he lived a long life. He didn't care about the things of this world because he was so laser focused on Jesus and his kingdom. And he knew that as soon as his head would be lopped off, he would enter into glory. He loved Jesus more than man, more than any authority, more than his kinsmen, more than his own life. And I like to imagine John in his boldness saying something like this. We can't know for sure, but you can take my head, but you can't take Jesus from me. And I think he laid his head down knowing full well what was about to happen and he wasn't afraid because he knew Jesus. He knew that knowing and living for Jesus, he lacked nothing. He had everything. So we should not read this account and have pity upon John. We should read this account and say, well done. He saw it. He got it. Do you? Turn with me to Acts 7 as we consider the third man. By the way, it probably should be stated, it's a good time to say this. These men aren't heroes, Christ is the hero. But the Word of God says, even Paul says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So when we see godly behavior, we should say, I want to imitate that because that is Christ-like. You see, there was nothing unique 
and special per se about Abel, John the Baptist, or Stephen as we talk about now. They were merely men loved by a holy God who saw Christ as worthy. There is no such thing as a hierarchy of Christians. There are only those who are unworthy recipients of God's love. Let's look at Stephen. Stephen doesn't get a lot of words written about him. But his story has nonetheless impacted many. And it's a great example of someone who saw Christ and lived that way. We're actually first introduced to Stephen in chapter 6 when he's chosen as one who would serve the needs of the church. He was said to be a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace and power and was performing signs and wonders. But there was a problem. His faith-induced works encountered heavy opposition. That is a pattern for your life, my friend. You want to live for Christ. You work for Christ. You live for Him. You're going to encounter opposition. Why? Because the world is dead. They can't see Christ as worthy like you do until God would open their eyes. Stephen encounters heavy opposition because people, upon hearing his message and viewing it to be a threat, these religious leaders act. They argued with Stephen. They lied about him to get him into trouble. They even put forth false witnesses so that Stephen would go to court. They incited a riot against him and had him dragged before their religious council. And this is where we find ourselves in Acts 7, we're going to be starting in verse 51. Stephen preaches this sermon. He reminds the Israelites, the religious leaders, by the way, were Jews. He reminds these Jews of all the good things God had done for them over and over and over again. And yet, they not only rejected the prophets, but they killed the Messiah. Do you think they liked that? No. They didn't like that message because they were self-righteous. They didn't want to be found because they didn't see themselves as lost. Look at what happens. Verse 51, the sermon continues. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. These are words that are not tolerated well by them. You can see their response in verse 54. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. That phrase, you might be wondering, what does that mean? The quick is the, is the skin that lies under your fingernail. And when that skin under your fingernail is stabbed with something sharp, that pain reaction that comes... You know what I'm talking about if something sharp has ever got under your fingernail. It is intense. It aggravates. It incites immediate rage. They were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. This is not a normal rage. This rage is expressing itself physically. They cannot tolerate being told of their sin. But instead of being afraid, because Stephen, when you speak, you can observe your audience, right? I'm thankful that you all aren't gnashing your teeth at me. 
But Stephen could perceive this, and he could have stopped speaking truth. But he wasn't afraid. Look at what happens, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus. I imagine time must have stopped for him in the moment. You know those sequences in movies when there's tons of action going on around, but then they zoom in on one character and they slow down time to make you really see it seem like time has slowed down completely. That, I think, is what Stephen is experiencing. He looks into heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus. He's probably completely unaware of who's around him anymore. And he tells them what he sees. And I think he, he, he's just expressing like this. Is, he's looking into heaven. And look what verse 56 says. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I don't think he's trying to be boastful. I think this is just, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They don't like that either. Verse 57 says this, they cried out with a loud voice, meaning they wanted to raise the volume so high that they could no longer hear what Stephen said. And not just that, they covered their ears. This is a double, a double strategy to make sure you're not going to hear anything Stephen has to say. You speak loudly so that you can't hear, and just in case you're not speaking loudly enough, you cover your ears. And not only that, but they rushed at Stephen with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, this is verse 58, they began stoning him. This process of stoning was painful. Stoning really just meant stones were cast at you over and over again until finally you've been beaten senseless that you die. Your bones are crushed, blood everywhere, pain excruciating until finally one crushes your skull. They stoned him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we've been speaking about this week. This Saul, before he saw Christ, killed Christians and approved of it. He looked upon that stoning of Stephen with a smile. He called what was evil good and what was good evil. Look how Stephen responds, though. Even as the stoning is occurring, verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew where he was going. It's just like the question we asked on the first session of this week. Where would you go if you died? If you see Christ as worthy, you're going to be in glory. When the final moments of life, life comes, you say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But not only that, verse 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Of course, that is just a way of saying he died. This was a man so moved by Christ that he gladly died for him. So moved by the love of Christ. So moved by his own unworthiness that in his dying breaths he prays that God would forgive them. Stephen saw 
Jesus. He was transformed by his grace, even though this is the only sermon we actually have of Stephen. Maybe it was the only sermon he ever preached. And you may be tempted to think that's tragic. How much more God could have used his sermons? Stephen lacked nothing because he knew Christ. And he saw this, that when you see Christ as worthy, you conclude that knowing and living for him is all that matters, right? It's all that matters. In fact, even after, and we won't continue reading, but in chapter 8, through Stephen's death, the gospel goes forth. Great persecution happens to the church. The church is then spread out to the nations, and the gospel goes forth. You see, Abel, John the Baptist, and Stephen were captured by their love for God. They died relatively young, but they had everything they could have ever wanted. They saw Christ as worthy, and they gladly rejected all else. Philippians 3, 18 through 19 We've read this already, but you have got to see this. More than that, this is Paul, the very one who we just saw smiling at Stephen's death when he was transformed by seeing Christ. He wrote this. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of what? the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. These men saw God as worthy do you. Do you see the value of knowing Christ as greater than anything in this world? Do you live this way? Would you gladly suffer the loss of all things so long as you held on to Jesus? You see, as a Christian, you may not live a long life on earth, but to know Jesus means you have eternal life. You may never be someone famous or noteworthy in the world's eyes, but to know Jesus means the God of the universe, perfectly holy, just, and good, the Creator, knows you. If no one else knew your name but God alone, you would have everything you ever needed. You may never accumulate great things on this earth, but to know Jesus is the greatest treasure. And nothing can take that away. You may live the rest of your life without any money to your name, but to know Jesus means you have riches in heaven. You may not have the perfect family on this earth. You may have parents who don't love you, they don't lead you to Christ. Maybe you never will have the family that you envisioned or desire, but in Christ, you have a perfect father. And he will one day bring you into the perfect family. You are already a part of that family. The nation you live in may fall and your freedoms will be lost. But if you know Christ, you have freedom from sin and death. What else could you possibly want? You no longer have to fear death because Christ has conquered death. You may never live a life of ease. You may be filled with constant frustrations and anxieties in your life. But if you know Jesus, there will come a day where there will never be a reason for any alarm. There will one day be a day where there will truly be nothing to fear. And in one sense, that day is here already. You have nothing to fear. For the scriptures say, what can man do to me? 
I know some of you are going through difficult things that produce weeping, sorrow. I know that's me. You may cry the rest of your days so that your life ends with weary eyes from tears. But if you know Jesus, he will wipe away every single one. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every tear ever shed will be wiped away when you see his face? He promises that. You may experience trial after trial and terrible loss after terrible loss. But you must be reminded of this. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your body may fail. I want you to be reminded of this. To follow God does not mean you will live long. It doesn't mean you will live healthy. It doesn't mean you will be wealthy. It doesn't mean those things. In fact, many times, it is the grace of God that it's the opposite. But you must know when those difficult times come, when your health fades away, when you fight sickness and you're so frustrated your organs begin to fail and there's great pain that leads you to death. You must be reminded that if you know Jesus, though you die, you live. Part of the freedom maybe being lost one day may mean that your faith leads you into great persecution. Maybe some of the tears that Christians will cry will be because they watch their family members killed in front of them. Jesus will wipe away those tears. And even if the persecutors kill you, they send you straight to glory. John eleven twenty five through 26. These are my favorite two verses at this moment in time in my life. Jesus said to her, this is speaking to Mary and Martha, after Lazarus had died, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is what Jesus asks, and I want to ask you, and you answer it in your heart. Do you believe this? Do you believe that if you know Jesus, though you may die, you live. And there is a very true and real sense that you will never die. And finally, though you now see Jesus dimly through faith, one day your faith will become sight. One day you will behold his glory face to face. I do not know what that will be like, but I know what it is like to look at a mere star that he has made in the sky. I know that to look upon the sun, I cannot do it for a moment without my eyes being fried. How much more glory does the creator have? You're gonna need new eyes to see him these eyes won't last because the glory of Jesus is so potent, is so powerful that 1 John 3, 2 says that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. You see dimly through faith, but one day, you will see him, and upon seeing him, instantly transformed. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. 
Do you long for that day to see a sight that you have never seen before and that you will never grow weary of seeing? This is how Paul and all Christians can honestly say this, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You will see him face to face. And all of these benefits are yours in Christ, who alone is worthy because of this. He set his affection upon you from eternity past before anything was created. His choosing you was based in nothing you have done or will do, but solely because he loved you. He sent his son to die a terrible death for you. And like we spoke about a few days ago, the physical dying on the cross was nothing compared to the wrath of God. He died on the cross for your sins, rose three days later to show that death was crushed. And after that, he has called you to himself through his gospel message, and now you are alive. Now, having faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. You have peace with God. You have Christ's righteousness. Do you remember the voice from heaven that said, speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I am pleased and well pleased. That's what God thinks of you when you stand in his righteousness. Not only this, he gave you an inheritance that no one can take away. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you to make sure you receive it. You see, God the Father planned your salvation. Jesus, the Son, purchased your salvation. And the Holy Spirit is sent to help you persevere to the end. The Godhead, the perfect Trinity, all working so that you can be with God. And when the end of our life comes, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of a perfect eternity where you will, will enjoy the fullness of God. You will never come to an end of His glory. Though you keep searching, you will keep finding. Fall on your knees before Him and worship. If you see Christ as worthy in this room, it's only because He has made you see it. So worship Him. And may this worship lead you to this conclusion. Knowing and living for Christ is all that matters. He is worthy. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. And the band's going to come up. We're going to sing one last song together. And I want you, I want to challenge you. If you have seen the goodness of God this week or maybe in your life. If you see him as worthy, sing this song with everything you've got. He's worthy. We would do well to shout in praise, right? Let's pray as the band comes forward. Lord, it never ceases to amaze me that through eight sessions and hours upon teaching, we haven't even scratched the surface of your goodness. We can't even comprehend your goodness to be able to articulate it with human words. There's not a word that exists 
to describe you, God. You are indescribable. Yet, you have shown us yourself. We are privileged in this room. We are privileged to not only hear your word, to have copies of your word, but to know you. Lord, it is my prayer that those who do not know you would look to you in faith, that they would see you as worthy and as ready to forgive them because of your work on the cross. So help us, Lord. We desperately need it. We pray that as we go home tomorrow, that we would still see you as worthy, that we would live every moment of every day for you, and that we would not look back like Lot's wife that we would no longer desire the things of this world, but that we would only desire you. You are worthy, <clears throat> worthy of it all. And all we can say is thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.